Hi everybody, welcome to the March 6, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the fact that jury selection for the Aurora Movie Theater trial is progressing faster than anticipated. Opening statements are expected in late April, which were originally planned for May or even June. Penny Calhoun from Westward, uh, I guess this has made headlines because actually going faster than what was scheduled is the first time we've actually heard this from this trial. Do you expect to see opening statements in late April? I think we probably will and I guess if you think that you can get a fair trial in Arapahoe County, there's no reason to think if you call 3,000 people that you can't find people who can judge James Holmes fairly in less than four months or whatever they were talking about. So that it's going faster than their worst case scenario isn't a surprise, but look how long it's taken us to get to this point. It's true. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, do you think that, um, that what we're seeing is actually a sign of a more efficient trial to come, or are we just getting lucky with this headline? I, I think it's probably a, a sign that the judge is managing the trial well. Sort of the, the, the polar opposite of that is the famous Judge Ito from the OJ trial, <laughs> where everything got out of control, and I think it became like a five-year uh, miniseries on, on television. Yeah. Uh, it, it has taken a long time already, and to some degree it has to, but it seems like he's, he's making things a, as efficient as reasonably possible while still making sure to have strong protections of due process. Because if, if the jury ultimately returns a capital sentence, then there's going to be lots of appeals. And so you want the foundation that the uh, appellate courts will be looking at to be rock solid. Eric Sondman, political analyst, uh, were you surprised uh, that we might see it sooner than we thought? Oh, I can't say I was terribly surprised. When I think of speed and something moving swiftly, the uh, James Holmes trial is not exactly the first thing that comes to my mind. Yes, jury selection is maybe taken somewhat shorter than anticipated, but uh, the anticipation was for a very, very protracted process. It's still going to be a better part of a three-month process just to pick a jury. And I feel like I'm repeating myself because we've had this conversation before around this table. I still come back to the question of for what? There was a plea deal on the table here that you know, would have sent uh, Mr. Holmes away forever and several days after forever. Um, I, I still am not sure that I see the value in this trial um, given the plea deal that was there to be taken. Imagine not the last time we'll be talking about that particular right. argument. Susan Green, editor at ColoradoIndependent.com. Wrap it up for us. Uh, the defense in this case, I don't think their strategy in any way is to prove Mr. Holmes' innocence. Uh, they have two strategies or two possible tricks up their sleeve. One is um, to argue uh, insanity so that the death penalty is not meted out. But this is the 18th Judicial District, ground zero for the death penalty in Colorado and really the West. So the other tactic is what, what David said, um, an appeal. And most death penalty cases, death, death penalty sentences do get convicted, and they get convicted on small procedural things like jury selection. So the faster the judge goes, um, and really, I mean, I'm not sure we really want this to go so fast. I mean, it's more expensive if it gets appealed 
you know, you take a couple extra days, you slow down, because any perception of unfairness in picking this jury will result in, in an appeal. That's what happens when life is at stake. We'll see it for probably many years to come. A dozen sheriffs from Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas filed a lawsuit on Thursday to end marijuana legalization in Colorado. The suit claims the federal law overrides state law and that international treaties require Colorado to criminalize the drug. Patty, this is the fourth uh, big lawsuit that is going against the Colorado, uh, against the state of Colorado about Amendment 64. Um, what did you think about this one? Well, I think the Colorado sheriffs who went in with Kansas, um, is it Kansas and Nebraska on this one, probably could have chosen better compatriots. We already see how crazy the Nebraska-Oklahoma case is. I think Colorado's in a really good position to defend this law. It has the vote of the people. And not only that, we have public sentiment across the country now heading towards legalization or at least decriminalization of marijuana. So I'm not entirely sure why these sheriffs um, decided they had to do this now, but I will say this, they probably have other laws that they need to observe in their own counties. I would imagine so. Uh, David, you are our esteemed lawyer at the table today. I read in some of the articles about this particular lawsuit that of the four that are against Colorado right now, legally it's the weakest. But I, I don't know exactly if that's the case. What do you think? Well, that's the assessment of Professor Sam Kamen at Denver University Law School, who is uh, a very good law professor and also the, probably the, the leading law professor in the country on, on marijuana law. So... I, th I think his view counts for a lot. I would say, I wish I could say all these cases were hopeless and have no chance of success. Uh, I'm not so confident about that. The root of much evil in the world, always you can trace it back to Richard Nixon, uh, our most <laughs> criminal president, and uh, the United Nations. In 1971, the United Nations created the Convention on Psychotropic Substances, an international treaty which the Nixon signed and the Senate ratified, and then they said, oh, well, gee, to, we've already had laws against drugs for a long time, but now we need to uh, beef them up or expand them to comply with our, our treaty obligations under this, and that gets you the Controlled Substances Act of 1971, which is still the, the foundational modern uh, anti-drug law. The lawsuit is correct to say that the United States has ratified treaties which require it to criminalize marijuana. On the other hand, legally speaking, Congress, the fact that the U.S. Senate ratified this treaty and acted within its constitutional powers in doing so, doesn't mean that the Senate or Congress as a whole has the power to commandeer state legislatures or the, the lawmakers of the state, the people themselves, into making laws against that, even if it's a valid treaty which creates an international law obligation on the U.S. national government under our constitutional system. That doesn't mean that local governments and that the people themselves can be forced to enact particular laws. And the, the case of New York versus United States from the early 1990s says that very clearly, that even when Congress is acting within its enumerated powers, they cannot commandeer the lawmaking process of the states. Eric, as we see Governor Hickenlooper, as he's, I guess, named as one of the key defendants being the governor of Colorado, and then Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman is the person who has to defend these and choose which ones to defend at which time, politically, is it going to become 
uh, a little tiring for those folks to go to these because it's not like either Hickenlooper or Kaufman were big supporters of Amendment 64. It's the law of the land. They'll they'll uphold their oath, but. I can't imagine this is how they wanted to be spending their time in either of their positions right now. No, I think that's a good point, Dominic. But, you know, it's not like John Hickenlooper is sitting there and is going to spend the next several years of his life writing legal briefs. <laughs> or, for that matter, that Cynthia Kaufman is going to be writing legal briefs. She has a appellate staff, uh, a very capable appellate staff in the Attorney General's office uh, that will handle that form. This is what goes with being the governor of the state, the chief executive, and with being the Attorney General of the state. I flash back to 19, or the aftermath of 1992 and Amendment 2, the gay rights uh, proposition at Colorado passed now better part of a quarter century ago and that lawsuit that ultimately uh, re was reversed uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court was called Evans v Romer v. Evans, I believe. Yeah. Now, it's not that Roy Romer, Governor Roy Romer, was a big cheerleader for the anti-gay rights cause. It's just he happened to be the chief executive of the state and you get named uh, in that capacity. Of the regular panelists, uh, around this table, I'm perhaps a little bit lower on the scale in terms of cheerleading for Amendment 64. I have my doubts about it. I, I wrestle with the, with the issue considerably, but I'm a little bit more of a skeptic on it. I think we won't know for 10 years or 20 years or longer in terms of the degree to which it is a success or not, or any long-term health ramifications. All that said, I'm even more skeptical of federal intervention. I'm more of a supporter of states' rights here. I think Colorado, along with other states, Alaska that being the most recent, have the right to, um, uh, to, to be laboratories of experimentation, to, to have sovereignty over some laws like this. I do think the f burden is on the federal government to, uh, to enunciate a policy that allows Colorado to pick its path, whether that path is the right path or the wrong path. And so I hope these lawsuits do not move forward or do not, do not have traction. Susan, uh, we've seen other states start to get on the recreational pot bandwagon, uh, Alaska and I believe Oregon. Um, do you think the anti-drug activists and maybe some law enforcement officials are seeing Colorado as their last stand to really stem this tide that is likely to grow rather than to recede? Uh, sure, if they can get sheriffs like Justin Smith in, in Larimer County, which is the lead plaintiff in Colorado in this case, who's essentially kind of a more of a shock jock in some ways than a sheriff. I mean, he's better known for his bombastic and in, in some ways um, racist uh, Facebook posts than his law enforcement, but look here at a sheriff who in one week is saying, you know, we've got to abide by federal law here. Um, this is, this is, we have, a, we have a duty to abide by federal law on this pot thing. In the same week, he's, he's criticizing um, uh, immigration, federal immigration policy in the executive order um, and saying it was, uh, basically fed into an electorate or, you know, millennials who were covertly fed white guilt by um, the school system. I mean, which is it? Are we going federal here or are we going state? So, you know, this, this is the guy who created um, so much trouble and, and in some ways rightly so for Governor Hickenlooper on that whole apology about, um, about uh, uh, gun legislation. And, you know, he is a shock jock. Um, and this lawsuit, like many of these pot lawsuits, aren't about the law. They're just about, you know, making noise. Getting some, getting yeah. some attention. Mm -hmm. 
Citizens in Littleton passed a measure this week requiring voter approval before the city can utilize urban renewal economic development tools such as tax increment financing or eminent domain. Uh, David, this was a big deal that happened really off the, I mean, even as the, the coverage was, it was a very small um, uh, coverage in the Denver Post of even analyzing this. But as, as cities go, I can't imagine any others that would say, that would put this kind of restriction on their city. Is this a, a, as big a deal as we think? Sure, that this is breaking up that, that iron triangle that exists between the government officials and the contracting lobby and the corporate welfare hogs. The voters of Littleton, uh, I think, agreed with what uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase said back in Calder versus Bull in 1798 that the most, you don't even need a constitution to tell that some things are flagrantly illegal and contrary to the rule of law itself. And the prime example of that is taking X's property to give it to Y. And that's what so-called urban renewal has become in this state, which is robbing from one business to give it to another more politically, to give the property to another more politically powerful business. The voters of Littleton overwhelmingly rejected that. They, in fact, they, they passed one measure which was put on as the lesser thing, which was just to stop that, and pass that by a huge margin, and then on the other measure, which was to say, when you have these give pseudo-governmental power to corporations, to say, we're going to have a corporate welfare shopping mall, and the sales taxes, the taxes that the people pay, which are supposed to go to the government, instead go to the shopping mall developer for improvements there. Well, if that's going to happen, that's going to have to be approved by the people themselves. Again, that's the spirit, at least, of the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, that the people choose on the taxes. 60-40 went on this. The, the voters got the uh, corporate welfare triangle, outspent the citizens 30 to 1, and you still have this result. I think you will see this movement spread throughout the state, and it is long overdue. You can be pro-business pro and pro-free enterprise, and if you are, that means you want them to stand on their own two feet and not succeed by going to city councils so that the city council will order the robbery of some other business to benefit the more politically powerful one. Eric, David's last point is one that intrigues me. Is this going to catch on? Littleton is not known as um, a city that is always going rogue. It's, it's pretty mainstream, right smack dab in the middle of Arapahoe County, and it did win very, uh, by overwhelming margins um, with, like, like David said, being, I would spend 30 to 1. It, uh, do you think other cities are listening? I don't know if other cities are listening, but I think voters in other cities are listening and, and interest groups who are aligned with David. And what interests me, what fascinates me about this issue is I think it is one of those issues where it unites left and right. Um, you know, there may be some people a little more in the middle who aren't quite there yet, but I think the populist left shakes their head yes and at what David says, and the conservative right shakes their head yes uh, at what David says. So it's an, interesting, um, it's an interesting coalition. There were actually two issues, as I understand it, on the Littleton ballot, both of which passed by huge margins. One to require a vote of the people before any use of eminent domain or tax increment financing. And the second one that further limits eminent domain 
only in cases when requested or initiated by the property owner. Um, I, I think there is the potential for this to catch some fire. Um, obviously, it's not going to be put on by city councils. It's not going to be funded by established interests. It's going to have to be an insurgent kind of thing, petitioned under the ballot, uh, as, was, as was the case, uh, I believe, in Littleton. Um, and we'll see. I think my question is, as long as Littleton is an outlier, um, does it put the city at some kind of competitive disadvantage where some deals that might otherwise come to Littleton go elsewhere? And that might be a price that Littleton is very happy and willing to pay. But if this gains traction and more than one municipality does it, then the competitive disadvantage issue also goes away. Susan, do you think this gains traction? Absolutely. Um, I, I think uh, in Colorado, urban renewal um, does not necessarily represent the interests of uh, the electorate. And if we had a representative, real true representative municipal government that were um, not influenced by big money and development, that would be one thing. But as anyone who has watched municipal government closely and covered it, tax increment financing and eminent domain are grossly abused. I mean, that is the territory of cronyism. And um, so I, I also think there's this issue of local control. I mean, among the left, um, if you believe that local communities should have control over whether there's fracking in their community, why should they not have control over whether their taxes get spent on some um, gentrification? Uh, Patty, if you're a developer in, in Coming, looking to come to Colorado, this is a popular uh, city in Denver. It's not, I'm not saying we call it booming, but it's been pretty popular, especially considering the recession years. Is this a warning, a warning out there, kind of a canary in coal mine, that it might be a little bit uh, different years ahead? It might mean you want to consider Walsenburg or Trinidad, <laughs> places where the economy is not doing as well. And I think what we're going to see, it's not just that people don't trust tips, and we've seen abuses in the past. I think it also becomes more of a more, uh, referendum on growth itself. People see that Colorado is growing. Littleton is certainly growing. Denver is certainly growing. And there are a lot of issues coming up where people want, where we're going to be voting again on taxes. If you look at the big stock show master plan, which city council is supposed to sign off on Monday night, it's $854 million and counting. And there are 35 private property owners that will have to sell their property in order for this plan to go through, whether they want to or not. So we may see some cases coming along that will bring this uh, eminent domain issues, the issues of where what we're going to pay for as taxpayers, because that whole proposal calls for the extension of the lodging tax. And I think at a certain point, even in Denver, which usually would tax itself plenty, people might start saying, we don't want to pay for more growth. The High Performance Transportation Enterprise Board, which sets toll rates on Colorado highways and probably named for the easiest to say of all the agencies in Colorado, decided this week that more public input is needed on proposed toll rates for U.S. 36. The new rates could go as high as $14 for a car without an express pass at peak times, which would be twice as much as it is in I-25. Eric, uh, the rates were proposed, and then we saw a little bit of uproar, and then the board said, well, wait, maybe we need some more public input, or need to wait some time. It, it, people can decide what that means. But do you think eventually U.S. 36 drivers, again, without the express pass at peak times, are going to be paying $14 to use those lanes? Well, I don't know if it's going to be $14, but it's going to be a substantial, uh, significant amount of money, and over time, 
rates never go down. Um, and even if they start at, you know, even if they're dialed back somewhat and start at a, in the 11 or $12 range, it won't be too many years before you see 14 or 17 or 18. I think it's the ultimate test of how much is 15 minutes worth to you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the ultimate test also of supply and demand as, you know, those rates can fluctuate as uh, times of day or as people decide whether or not uh, they want to go in that high occupancy uh, lane. But uh, I remember flashing back 15 or more years ago when these lanes and this kind of system of uh, traffic management was first proposed, they were dubbed Lexus lanes. Mm -hmm. And they're probably Lexus lanes for a reason as you start, you know, it's no longer costing you pennies or dimes or quarters, but it's starting to be money that over the course of a week or a month or a year really adds up. Susan, should Boulder be angry about this? Absolutely. I think everybody should be angry about it. Um, the supporters of this liken it to other, other things that people pay for by use. For example, cable TV or um, cell phones. And roads aren't like those things. You know, you, you, you need access to roads to get to your job. You need them to take your kid to school. You might need them to get to the hospital. And, um, you know, this just is a slippery slope for icing people out of getting to where they need to get um, because they, they can't afford it. And, you know, it's Boulder, right? So I think that's kind of the unspoken thing. Well, Boulder can afford it. But, you know, there are students on that road. There are, um, I mean, it, it's in some ways this kind of... Uh, yeah, it's a Lexus lane, and these people on this, what is this committee called? Because I just, I love the name of this so much. <laughs> it is the High Performance Transportation Enterprise Board. I think those people on the Enterprise Board are going to get an earful in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Betty, when, I, I get the idea of a toll road and that you only have to pay it if you want it. It's not a mandatory charge, but should it be twice as expensive as I-25? Well, because I-25 is such a joy to drive up during traffic, too. You know, this is coming on the heels of a, an earlier insult, which is that light rail has become bus rail to Boulder. So that here's Boulder, that already that, that option is gone for them. They can get on buses if they want, and now they can pay $14 if they want, or they can just poke along at three miles an hour, whatever it's going to be. I think we're going to see a lot of protest over this. I think we're going to see continued scrutiny scrutiny and calls for transparency on both the I-36 deal and now any proposals for I-70 since they're talking about a public-private partnership and people are really going to want to see the details of that. David, you're bold right on the panel. The floor is yours. I drive 36 every day. Susan's right, of course, that, that roads like parks or public schools are a general thing for the public and appropriate thing for the government to provide out of general tax revenue. The fact is the people of Colorado who have the choice about raising their taxes clearly do not want to raise taxes for more road building. There isn't going to be no improvement at all on 36 if you ask for it out of general tax revenue. The money, the money ain't there, and there is no appetite for a tax increase. And I don't think it's actually, you know, and I think it's reasonable to say people in Durango and Grand Junction and Rifle and Trinidad uh, shouldn't have their taxes raised to pay for people on 36. This project is not in any way reducing what people can do for free on 36. You've got still two lanes in each direction. In fact, it's improved by the addition of a separate bike lane, which is important for some people in Boulder, like uh, 
I'm not a bico nut, but I would appreciate it. And there's and Boulder certainly has lots of bico nuts who would use it all the time. Uh, also, is usable as a pedestrian path. A center lane in both two lanes in both directions for buses, which means people who take the very heavily subsidized RTD, which is paid for by lots of other people, who never take the bus. Those people getting their subsidized rides on RTD are going to zip through with no traffic jam. Huge improvement there. If you want to opt out of the regular free traffic lane, then this whole thing gets paid for by the people who choose to opt in and pay a toll. That's where all the money comes from, and that people will decide what it's worthwhile to them. Yeah, if you're going to spend seven bucks each way, then you have money to burn if you're going to do that every single day. But there's lots of times when people choose to do it. You're late for a business meeting. Yeah, you definitely want to spend seven bucks maybe going down and save that 15 minutes in traffic. And on the way back, maybe you don't mind waiting. Or you're picking up your kid from daycare. There's lots of reasons why people can choose to pay this optional fee, which supports all the improvements on 36, which benefit everyone. Well, let's get to the easiest part of the show and our favorite, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, start us off. Well, since I'm plugged back in, let me return to pot. <laughs> the New York official who is blaming the murder rate in New York City on pot coming in from Colorado, when in fact, whether or not you like what Amendment 64 did to the state, the murder rate in Denver is way, way down from what it was 10 years ago. <laughs> I would think we'd have a positive effect on the murder rate in New York. David? With all the kerfluffle over... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's speech in Congress about, oh, who invited him and this, all this and that. Here's the bottom line. Ten years from now, we're going to have a different president. Ten years from now, most of the people in Congress aren't going to be there. Ten years from now, Netanyahu's probably not going to be in office. But ten years from now, if Obama gets his way, Iran is going to have, a nuclear, have nuclear weapons on intercontinental ballistic missiles. That endangers not only Israel, it endangers everyone in the world, including Americans. This is a catastrophe catastrophe for our future, for our children's future. If you're going to be alive 10 years from now, Obama is putting a sword of Damocles over your head and perhaps a death sentence. And that is the warning that this nation has to hear. Eric. Sometime we ought to do a whole show just devoted to disgraces because there's a long list of <laughs> we possibilities. Yeah, we're running uh, this out of time. Week. Keep going. <laughs> uh, let me go quickly with Hillary Clinton. If this is the way to start a campaign with, first of all, the very questionable practices around the Clinton Foundation in terms of donations accepted while she was Secretary of State and, and just the whole money operation she runs, and now the lame excuse she's using for why she had to use a private email and why there's no transparency there, I think it's reminding people of a soap opera that they're starting to question whether they really want to go back and do that soap opera all over again. Susan, your quick disgrace. Uh, the Justice Department, um, with lots of fanfare, released a report on Ferguson this week. What didn't get fanfare was the Justice Department's report saying that uh, it has undercounted by 100 percent the number of deaths um, by cop in this country. Um, those numbers are wildly inaccurate and they don't include shooting of bystanders or vehicular um, people driving cars like Jesse Fernandez in Denver and they need to be fixed. Extremely fast, we're already out of time. Say something nice as quick as you can. Colorado Tourism Office just won a great award for their campaign. The late Senator Regis Groff memorialized uh, recently by the Senate. Eric. Ringling Brothers Circus, better late than never, but finally getting rid of elephants should have happened decades ago. Susan. Uh, a documentary called Strong Sisters. It's trying to raise some money about women in politics in the state and um, the question of why we've never elected a governor or a senator who's a woman. 
That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks very much for tuning in. Remember that if you missed any part of the show or want to catch our web-exclusive production, CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube. I also send out our takes via Twitter, so please feel free to follow me there. Also, you can listen to our show as a podcast on iTunes, so be sure to check it out. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. 